welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Jose Estigarraga, Global Head of Reed Smith's International Arbitration Practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights, and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Welcome back to Arbitral Insights, where today we will consider the topic, knowing your audience and arbitrator's perspective. I'm Alison Eslick, a senior associate in Reed Smith's Dubai office, and I'm here today with Michelle Nelson, a senior partner of Reed Smith, who is also based with me in Dubai. Now, in addition to representing clients in major construction arbitrations for the past 20 years, Michelle also sits as an arbitrator. She has therefore seen the practice of arbitration from two unique perspectives, both as advocate and arbitrator, and she is well placed to advise on what arbitrators want and expect from parties, what impresses them and what doesn't. Thank you, Alison, for that kind introduction. It really has been a privilege to serve as arbitrator over the past few years. And as you say, wearing these two hats in my career, on one hand as an advocate for my clients' interests, and on the other hand in an impartial and objective role as arbitrator, has given me enormous insights and has helped to shape the way I practice going forward. Indeed. And so without further ado, Michelle, perhaps we should launch into our first topic for today, which is how parties can make a good first impression before an arbitration panel. Yes, Alison, this this is really, really important. And at the outset, one of the first interactions parties will have with a tribunal is during the appointment process. And sometimes parties may have a legitimate rise, a right to raise concerns about an arbitrator's independence and impartiality or matters concerning their skills and experience and whether they're an appropriate choice as arbitrator. So parties should, of course, consider that any challenges that they may make may not be successful. And if so, that that arbitrator may actually end up deciding the dispute. And certainly you may have challenges to make and you should make them. But parties should obviously ensure that they are neither rude nor disrespectful when doing so. And of course, challenges should never be personal. I actually have had challenges raised to my jurisdiction during the arbitrations that I've sat as arbitrator for. And this is part part for the course when sitting as an arbitrator and not a matter of offence. And in that case, the party handled itself very professionally, which made an excellent first impression, despite the fact that they were raising a challenge to my jurisdiction. And that, I think, brings me to the next point I wanted to emphasise, which concerns the tone and style of parties' correspondence with the tribunal. Now, as counsel, I understand and and I do myself that there is a drive to win battles. But now that I also sit as arbitrator, I see that much of what parties do in their applications is actually potentially unnecessary hot air. It can be quite repetitive and time-consuming. And so as an arbitrator reads applications, I would really like to suggest to parties, and I do now consider this myself when when drafting my own correspondence, um, that less is more. And being overly aggressive is not only unhelpful to arbitrators, but it can also undermine a party's credibility or indeed actually detract from the merits of what you're saying in a submission. So definitely my, my, my recommendation would be that parties should aim to be constructive, not obstructive in their correspondence. 
So in terms of the merits of a party's case and the going uh, continuing the theme of first impressions, of course, it always makes a good first impression for a claimant or respondent to avoid excessively inflated claims and poorly constructed legal submissions. However, I certainly understand that parties sometimes file a request for arbitration without legal counsel involved or in the hope perhaps that they want to obtain a quick settlement um, and that claims tend to evolve as the uh, arbitration goes along. So whilst, to be honest, It does make a good first impression to have a perfectly constructed case from the outset. So long as the parties can give a tribunal clarity and understanding about what is being claimed and its basis, and do this preferably by the time of the final hearing, then this is what really matters. And to give you an example, Alison, of where a party failed to do this, I recently sat on a case as arbitrator where a party's prayers for relief was not clear. And from the outset and continually, the party refused to clarify its position, even though I'd made various requests for them to do so. And the difficulty with this is that ultimately I have to draft an award. And in drafting an award, I have to decide the issues which are being referred by the parties and make sure that all of the prayers for relief have been properly answered. And in the absence of clarity in relation to that, it makes it very difficult. And it was certainly extremely frustrating in that case to have to repeatedly ask the party to do so. So in terms of making a bad impression, then that's definitely a no-no because, of course, the role of an arbitrator is ultimately to make a decision. And as I've said, you need to know what it is that you're deciding. Well, that's all very practical advice there and um, certainly a good reminder that while first impressions do count, a good arbitrator is mainly concerned with issuing a solid award and having all the necessary information to decide uh, the claims and the issues before it. Now, Michelle, I want to move on and talk a little bit about the importance of an arbitrator's case management role. So, as you know, under the major institutional rules, arbitrators have a duty to ensure efficiency and cost effectiveness of arbitration proceedings, whilst at the same time, they must ensure that parties are given a proper opportunity to be heard. For this reason, when selecting arbitrators, especially for large and complex claims, we always advise our clients that an arbitrator's case management skills are critical. So, Michelle, again, putting on your arbitrator hat, what can parties do to effectively support a tribunal's case management role? Thank you, Alison. It's a, it's a very good question. And, and certainly, as an arbitrator, the role is certainly a fine balancing act. There's a real balance to be struck between efficiency and speed at all costs versus giving parties a full and proper opportunity to present their case. So making sure that there's a sensible and realistic procedural timetable in place from the outset is naturally important. And arbitrators will look to safeguard the hearing dates because once set, it can be very difficult to reschedule them given the multiple diaries involved for tribunal members, parties, experts, councils, etc. So it's important to get hearing dates set in the in the diary early. However, I would say that whilst parties should work hard and towards keeping those hearing dates. They should not be considered as set in stone if there are genuine reasons for moving them. And this has been an issue that's been been particularly prevalent over the last year to uh, 18 months or so with the the COVID-19 pandemic. 
there's been many cases where deadlines have um, had to move um, and, and not through the fault of the parties or people being obstructive. It's been the challenges of working remotely and various other other aspects that have been associated, even including illness by um, you know, tribunal members or counsel and the like. And so there was one case that I had recently where we had a hearing in March of this this year, and the tribunal in that case was was hell bent on sticking to hearing dates um, at all costs, even when it was clear that this would prevent um, us in that instance from putting our full case to them. And this was again through no fault of our own. There'd been slippage in the timetable, and, and dates had drifted, and we basically ran out of time. But the tribunal appeared to be determined to just carry on regardless. And we had quite a procedural battle with them in relation to this. And we we did eventually persuade them to reschedule, but it took us several goes. And we also ran a very big risk in that case of, of effectively being seen to being obstructive and hugely unpopular before the start of the hearing. So I think as a tribunal member, you need to be alive to that prospect. It's not always about um, reluctant parties trying to avoid the, uh, the day of reckoning. It could well be a necessary adjustment to be made. Other case management tips? Well, arbitrators will certainly be pleased where parties avoid excessive, lengthy or repetitive correspondence, which attempts to score points on petty details, but it's not actually very helpful to decide the merits of the case. Again, arbitrators will also welcome good faith efforts by the parties to agree certain procedural issues amongst themselves instead of having to excessively resort to the tribunal for assistance. You sometimes find that parties can't even agree on the time of day and this becomes quite a burden for the tribunal who literally has to set every aspect of the procedure and drive matters forward when really sensible parties ought to be able to do much of this um, themselves, particularly on on matters of housekeeping for, for hearing and making arrangements, etc., of that nature. And of course, you know, a good arbitrator will step in if agreement between the parties on a particular procedural matter is clearly not going to happen. And it's important to do so because otherwise you'll end up with, uh, with a deadlock and nothing moving. I've had a recent example of a case where I acted as counsel where the arbitrator didn't step in when our client argued that it really ought to because it was patently obvious that the party was not going to be able to reach an agreement amongst themselves. And this led to multiple rounds of disagreement and and considerable wasted time and costs. So I think this goes back to the balancing act that I mentioned earlier. The arbitrator has to be fair and flexible when managing the proceedings, but equally he or she must be confident and decisive to make decisions and to drive forward the procedure when needed. And I think that's a very important part of the role. Yes, certainly, as you say, Michelle, there is a balancing act involved. And of course, arbitration aims to be quicker and cheaper than going to courts. So parties in the arbitral tribunal must really all work together jointly towards that goal. Look, I want to talk now about how parties handle disappointment. Because an arbitration, of course, has winners and losers. And that is not just the case at the end of an arbitration when a final award is issued. But actually, throughout an arbitration, there will be procedural decisions, partial awards on matters such as jurisdiction and so forth. Now, naturally, Michelle, you will have had decisions go for and against you as an advocate, and perhaps even some decisions you felt were not correct or not justified. 
And as arbitrator, you will have also handed down your decisions to the parties. So drawing on your experience, both as an advocate and arbitrator, what is your advice to parties on how to handle themselves when things don't go their way? That's a really good question. And certainly an arbitrator will always appreciate a party that is magnanimous in defeat and effectively accepts a decision and moves forward to the next hurdle in the case is really the best move for a party who does not prevail on a procedural issue. And it's quite common, and I've done it myself, and a tribunal will, will expect parties to make a legal reservation regarding a negative decision in certain circumstances. For example, where they've made a jurisdictional challenge and that's not been successful, they may want to reserve their right to raise the same issue um, before a court um, on a potential enforcement of an award uh, application in the, in the courts and the like. And there's no that the, there's no issue in terms of making that reservation. Um, but it's best not to keep telling a tribunal that its decision was wrong. Once the reservation is made, it protects the position and you move forward. Um, and I think it's best to, to do it in that way professionally and in a, in a very matter-of-fact way. And certainly personal attacks on an arbitrator or threats of liability, for example, um, are definitely poor form and um, and can certainly undermine a party's credibility um, and the arbitration process that the parties have consented to. And I think it's very right to say that council should be wary of falling into the trap of making gratuitous comments on behalf of a disgruntled um, client. I've seen this happen firsthand um, where bullying by a party of a very eminent chairperson was called out by him at a hearing. And it was clear to me that the the counsel in that case had, had effectively written an email in that instance, effectively on, on instruction by the client. Now, when it came before the hearing, then obviously you can't hide behind the email and you can't also hide behind the client. And so it's a very, it, it was very embarrassing in that case. And, and I felt particularly sorry, actually, for the council on the other side to be put in that position. So I think it's very important to make sure that you, you behave courteously and, and professionally at all times. And, and, and of course, as you know, council for the last sort of 20 years or so, I've naturally had decisions which were decided against my clients. And whilst a party may be rarely successful in asking a tribunal to change its mind on a decision, it's not unheard of. And so parties can need to effectively read the room and really ask themselves whether there is grounds to act, ask a tribunal to reconsider something, if there's something new and different that could be raised, which perhaps a tribunal has not considered as part of its original direction or decision. And so reading that, that room and that situation is important. And a good and fair arbitrator will be open um, to this it would be wrong to be so obstinate that you can never make a wrong decision and, and revisit something if, if necessary. But if there's no basis to protest, it's better to register your disagreement gracefully and move on. Otherwise, you're going to run the risk of really, really riling the tribunal unnecessarily. And this could obviously have a detrimental impact on your client, which is, of course, not in their interests. Of course, as advocates, we are hardwired to win, but your comments are a very helpful reminder to parties that uh, perhaps in, in most circumstances, it's best to keep calm and carry on. 
And look, perhaps that is a good time to talk about arbitration hearings in the new normal that we are experiencing. So since COVID-19, the arbitration community has switched very successfully to virtual hearings. And I know you have been involved in these, both as an advocate and as arbitrator. So can you tell us, Michelle, what are your top tips for a successful hearing from an arbitrator's perspective, bearing in mind the new virtual dynamic that we now have? Yes, and you're absolutely right. I've been involved in three hearings as arbitrator and two as counsel virtually within the last six months. And they have been actually, they've, they've run very well. And I think it's a, a testament to those who are running these uh, hearings that, um, that actually it's been uh, quite a successful transition. And I think the first point I would like to make, which applies equally to pre and post COVID-19 virtual hearing transition, is that hearing arrangements really should not become a battle between the parties. And I think I mentioned this briefly earlier. Um, Tribunals want hearings to run smoothly and will be delighted when parties can get on with this agreeably. There's things which need to be arranged with the the room, the transcript and all the virtual hearing platform, et cetera, and, and, and bundle and the like. And, and things, you know, can and, and do go wrong, particularly with the, a virtual platform where there could be technical issues, et cetera. And um, it's important that the parties, I think, cooperate helpfully together and that everyone's working together to get things to to work well. And certainly with with virtual hearings and, and the like, I think it's really important to make sure that everything's arranged well in advance and to make sure that everyone's aware of how things are going to go. Bundles, I think, are really, really critical. And this is um, whether on an in-person hearing or a virtual hearing, but certainly on on a virtual hearing, they need to be user-friendly, avoid duplication and should not include every single document merely for the sake of it. I had one bundle where the parties had printed out every single email that had been sent as part of the process through the whole hearing. And it created this huge bundle, which nobody ever referred to at the hearing. And so if there's very little chance of of something being referred to in that context. I think it's important to just consider whether it's truly necessary to be there as part of the hearing. But it needs to be a logical and efficient bundle, not just for use at the hearing, but that's that's the, the Bible effectively that an arbitrator will use when you're drafting the award. And so a, a good, well-constructed bundle is really important because that's the, the documents you will be going back to when you're drafting award as an arbitrator. Another thing that I wanted to mention generally is having a clear list of issues for the hearing, which will help to focus a tribunal and the parties on what is critical. And this is particularly helpful in, in complex arbitrations, such as construction matters, which are my area of expertise, to make sure that you've got a clear list of issues so that everybody knows what needs to be addressed and decided is really, really important. And certainly in construction cases, you will often have complex technical issues in dispute around issues such as um, delay and quantum, and a party needs to clearly articulate what the arguments are and what the issues are in order that the tribunal members can both understand them and understand what the issues in dispute are before actually being able to make a decision. Another thing I just wanted to mention on virtual hearings is 
don't turn your camera off unnecessarily. And, and I think it's important to consider if you're in a real hearing setting, then you're all in the same room and you are there um, listening and uh, participating, regardless of whether it's it's you speaking or your side speaking or whether it's the other side speaking. And I've noticed in some of my hearings where if council's not speaking, they switch their camera off. And um, this can be quite disconcerting because I think as as tribunal, you want to be able to read the room and reading the room includes the reaction of parties and council to things which may not be going their way or reading the body language and the um, and the facial expressions and the reactions as part of that. And I think switching off your camera is 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 quite disrespectful to be, to be absolutely honest um, and you have no clue as to what's sort of going on behind the camera screen and I think it's important to keep that openness as part of a virtual hearing setting as well. Excellent well look we're now coming to the end of our podcast and I only have time for one more question Michelle. Uh, as regular listeners to Arbitral Insights will know, Reed Smith has signed the pledge. And in doing so, we have committed to advising our clients to consider nominating more female arbitrators. In my own cases, I can definitely see the pledge in action. And it's becoming less common to see an all-male tribunal and more common to see a female chairperson. So, Michelle, as a female arbitrator and a lawyer in the male-dominated construction industry, how important is diversity to arbitration panels? And when do you think diverse panels will become the norm? Thank you, Alison. I think it's an extra, excellent area to, to finish on. And, and I agree wholeheartedly that diversity in arbitration panels, and not just diversity around female arbitrators, but diversity in a more broad sense, is really important to ensuring arbitration remains relevant and preferred dispute resolution mechanism. As to how soon diverse panels will become the norm, it's difficult to predict. But like you, Alison, I've seen strides toward this in recent times. I've genuinely felt that um, both ourselves, as, as you say, we've all taken the pledge and I think it's something that we are actively very committed to as a firm, but I've seen this across the board more. Where there's been lists of arbitrators, uh, potential arbitrators ex exchanged between parties, it's very rare to not find there being some female representation in those lists. And I think that's a good sign because that shows that um, that everybody is looking to make sure that there is um, some form of equal representation under consideration. And I've also seen in terms of the appointment, um, far more women being appointed on, on panels. I was recently asked to sit on an all-female panel as chairperson in an arbitrator in the Middle East, and this, I think, is 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 quite unusual. But it was a really um, a really excellent sign to support what we're talking about. Unfortunately, in that instance, I wasn't able to accept the appointment. I think it would have been a really interesting one, but again, I think it's a really good sign of the shift which is which is happening. I've also found of late that I, I frequently get contacted by arbitral institutions, both the ICC in Paris, but also local institutions, DIFC, RCIA and others, because I think they are proactively looking for female arbitrators when making their appointments. 
and so again, I see this as a sign that the uh, the community as a whole is really looking to, um, to to shift that balance. And I think this this certainly signals to me that things are changing due to the the pledge and, and obviously people's commitment to the same. And I really do believe that we're likely to see more of this to come. Well, that is certainly a great sign. Thank you for tuning in today to Arbitral Insights and also to Michelle Nelson for sharing her valuable insights on arbitration from an arbitrator's perspective. Thank you, Alison. It's been a great pleasure. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email Garaga at jia at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, ReadSmith.com, and our social media accounts at ReadSmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.